And one of the great moments of my life, one of the things I'm most proud of is that I coined that nickname, that Casita Dean May nickname. And I don't know what you're going to do when you get an Oliver one day, my friend. We're going to yeah. have to, we're going to have to talk through that. Yeah. With a name like, uh, uh, Oliver Dean, it sounds like I'm more an, a, an attorney for Nixon during a uh, Watergate or something. Oliver <laughs> Dean May. Oh my God. You, you, do, you either sound like a Watergate attorney or a Watergate criminal. <laughs> yeah. Um, or is there a difference? <laughs> well, exactly. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Jeremy. And we are the authors of Where Should We Camp Next? And Where Should We Camp Next? National Parks. This season, we are back with a brand new RV and brand new adventures. Join us now as we cover the best campgrounds, the best rigs, the best food, and the best gear to bring with you when you go. So pull up a chair and join us around the digital campfire. This is the RV Atlas. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the RV Atlas. Today, I am thrilled to have back on the show my friend, Casita Dean May. And Dean always brings us incredible episodes every single time, and today is no different. Today, we're going to talk about Cumberland Gap National Historical Park. Dean's going to give us a full review of the campground there, which is the Wilderness Road Campground, and that's where we're going to start, but he's got so much more. He's going to get take us into the history of the park. He's going to talk about recreation opportunities in the park. He's also going to talk about places to eat and things to do in the gateway towns around the park. And honestly, I think that this Cumberland Gap National Historical Park is an under-the-radar gem. I think it's a place you could do a week's vacation. Uh, there's parts of it in Kentucky. The campground is actually in Virginia because it's a long and skinny National Historical Park. So this is very reachable for a lot of us in the East. And I think it, it's going to make an amazing place for your next great RV trip. And Casita Dean May is going to tell you everything you need to know. This is almost like a little ebook on Cumberland Gap National Historical Park and the Wilderness Road Campground. So we're going to come back in a minute, say hello to Casita Dean May. But before we do so, we have a sponsored message from our friends at Camco. Camco is one of our favorite companies in the outdoor recreation industry. For more than 50 years, they have remained a trusted North Carolina-based manufacturer specializing in innovative products for the RV, marine, outdoor living, and outdoor recreation markets. You may know them best by their American-made Rhino sewer hoses, Taste Pure water filters, EvoFlex drinking water hoses, and TST toilet chemicals. But their lineup of products doesn't end there. Camco continues to deliver products that bridge the gap between you and your next great adventure. From portable grills and campfires to ease lift hitches and power grip electrical adapters, they seem to be doing it all. There's a saying that if you own an RV, you are sure to own a Camco product or two. And it's true. We still use Camco products that we bought 12 years ago when we started RVing. This year, we are stocking up our new RV with go-to Camco products like their collapsible laundry basket and their life is better at the campsite dishes and mugs. Head to CampcoOutdoors.com to check out all of the cool stuff that Camco makes and get 10% off your entire order with our discount code RVATLAS10. Hello, Casita Dean May, and welcome back to the RV Atlas. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing wonderful. How are you? Doing good. It's been a busy summer and a busy fall, but it's always great to catch up with you. And I went over your notes this morning, and this is going to be a spectacular podcast. 
on Cumberland Gap National Historical Park and the Wilderness Road Campground. But before we dive in, and we'll, we'll dive in quickly here, uh, how has your summer and fall been? I mean, how have you been doing with the RV travels? Oh, it's, it's been a nice summer. I, we're not going to hit any record-breaking uh, uh, numbers this year. Uh, but I, you know, we're right now about 35 nights. Uh, uh, we're going to take a trip next week to Versailles State Park in southern Indiana. And Laura's on jury duty in November, but uh, we may still try to get in a long weekend in November as well. Sounds good. You know, over the years, I've had so many people ask me, like, how many nights do you have to use your RV to make it worth it to purchase an RV? And that question varies by individual and how much you spend on your RV. But I've always thought if you can hit 30 nights, it's a no-brainer to get an RV, that you are getting great use out of your RV. So sounds like pretty good numbers to me. Are you ready to dive into Cumberland Gap National Historical Park? Because you've got a ton of, this is everything people are going to need to know to go here. Are you ready to go? I'd love to. So get us set up. You have a little quote to kind of set the mood, as it were. Yeah, this is kind of one of these in terms of thinking about a campground review and talking about this park. It is a national historical park, so you cannot talk about uh, Cumberland Gap without talking about its history. So here is a, a we're going to start with a quote and we'll finish with a quote. Uh, here's a quote. Stand at Cumberland Gap and watch the procession of civilization marching single file, the buffalo following the trail to the salt springs, the Indian, the fur trader and the hunter, the cattle raiser, the pioneer farmer and the frontier has passed by. And that was in 1893 by Frederick Jackson Turner who was a, 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 fa- a historian that basically uh, trained other PhD-level historians in uh, frontier theory. So uh, pretty interesting guy, and it's, this is a fascinating area. And, and it's at the, you're going to talk about this, but it's at the, the junction of several states too, right? So that's an interesting part of its history as well. Uh, so get, let's get into that right now. Like where, where is the location here of Cumberland Gap National Historical Park? Okay, so this is a 24,000-acre National Historical Park that is in Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia. Uh, You will actually enter the park in Kentucky, and you will spend the night in the campground, which is actually in Virginia. So Laura and I have never never camped in Virginia before, but since the campground is in Virginia, we count that as a new state for us this year, so... Oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. So um, so tell us a little, let's do the campground first to some degree, and then you're going to get into Cumberland Gap National Historical Park in general and some things to do in Gateway Towns. I mean, we've got a whole, this is a whole trip planner for anyone listening. Um, give, give us some info on the campground here at Cumberland Gap National Historical Park. Okay. So the campground is, uh, it's got 154 sites. Uh, now, the one thing I do need to pay, point out, because Laura and I tend to like hookups, uh, of the 154 sites, only 41 of the sites have electric. And at those electric sites, you'll have access to 50 amp, 30 amp, and and 20 amp. Uh, There is no sewer, but there is a a dump station at the entrance of the campground. And uh, you have three bathhouses, and at the bathhouses, uh, you will have potable water at each of the bathhouses and potable water as well at the dump station. And this is when sometimes Laura and I have camped at places that are, are electric only, but you usually have lots of water strategically placed 
Uh, there's not a lot of access to the uh, to water here. It's only at the bathhouses and at the entrance. And again, Laura and I uh, have a very small freshwater tank. So we basically would do part of our daily trip is we have a collapsible five-gallon uh, uh, tank, and we would fill it up at the uh, entrance of the campground and sort of top off our, our, our fresh tank. But you, if, uh, if you need full hookups, you got a, uh, an issue, or if water's an issue, just make sure you come in with fresh tanks and, and just kind of think about your water usage and things like that. And I mean, it's still nice, though, that you have some electrical hookup options, because that is actually very, very rare in any kind of NPS campground. And this is called the Wilderness Road Campground, but it is within the boundaries of, of Cumberland Gap National Historical Park, right? Yes, yes, it is Wilderness Road Campground. And on one end of the campground, uh, particularly as you go down the hill a little bit, you get closer and closer to Wilderness Road, and you can hear a little bit of traffic noise. But that's on down on like the D, E, F, and G loops. You can hear it a little bit more, but all of those are more primitive sites the uh, the sites the uh, the B loop and the C loop have all the electric hookups and you can't really hear any traffic noise there and and again you know we'll make recommendations later on but again I'd kind of highly recommend going ahead and and getting a, a site on either the B or C loop and is it a pretty campground is it naturally beautiful uh, or is it just convenient Oh no, I would say I mean you're in you're in the National Historical Park. So it's a pretty campground, heavily wooded. Uh I'd say literally most if not all of the sites are either moderately shaded or heavily shaded. Okay, great. Was this one hard to book and how much did did, did it cost? I feel like maybe we're getting a little bit of an under the radar gem here. Yeah, um, I that's exactly what I would say. I kind of monitored this uh because again, Laura and I aren't doing as many longer trips this year. Uh so I wanted to go here. It's, it was a couple hundred miles away from the house, so it was right at that upper upper limit and I checked it throughout the summer and never had any problems ever finding a site of even with on the electrical loops. So they, there seemed to be ample sites. And while we were there on the B and C loops, I would say it got somewhere between half full and two-thirds full. And there's literally no one on the uh, the primitive sites, which make up over, uh, you know, a uh, hundred of the sites there. You know, two, two, uh, more than two-thirds of the sites there are primitive sites, and most of them were, were wide open. Uh, you know, over the last few years, through COVID and the aftermath of COVID, you know, so many people that are interested in RVing, like you hear the story over and over again, oh, there's nowhere to camp, there's no sites available, everything's booked solid. And I, I kind of, I really don't like that narrative because part, uh, to be quite honest, I don't think it's true. I think if you want to camp, you can camp. I just think that like certain really popular places are hard to get into, but if you're willing to cast the net wide, there's lots of awesome places to camp. And this certainly sounds like one of them and it's affordable, right? Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, if you want a non-electric site, it's $18 a night. And if you want one of the electric sites, it's $24 a night. So, uh, and you, and you just, and you can make your reservations through reservation.gov. So it's a pretty easy process. Okay, great. Any other site details, anything that we need to know if you have a big rig or anything like that? Yeah, I think I would be a little careful. Now, I saw some huge, I saw 40 to, you know, 41, 42 foot long uh, fifth wheels, but you're going to have a tough time and there would be a limited number of sites there. 
I perused all of the sites earlier this week looking at their 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 links. On average, most of them are going to handle up to about 32 feet. Uh, there is a handful of sites that could go bigger than that. Uh, but you, there's also a number of sites that could only accommodate a smaller RV, particularly at the more primitive sites. And literally all of the sites are back in with the exception of one. So, and I, we can talk about, and I, we may, you know, I think we're going to cover that a little later. Now, what about getting into the campground? Is it relatively easy drive? Again, just thinking of somebody that might have like a larger fifth wheel or something. Was it pretty easy in and easy out? Uh, yes, yeah, it's uh, it's very easy. You're you're basically going to be on the Wilderness Road Highway. You're going to make a left into the park, and then and then from there into the campground. Uh, so no problems in terms of access, even with a larger rig, the number of sites for larger rigs will be the issue. But once you're in the campground, it's a well-developed paved loop. And then it's got a number of inner loops, A through F or G. Uh, so it's, it's an easy campground to uh, negotiate and easy to access. And you're again, just, oh gosh, probably less than a mile or so off of a wilderness uh, road. Awesome. So how about Wi-Fi and cell service if you might have to do any work while you're there? How is that? Uh, absolutely no Wi-Fi. That's, that's non-existent. Uh, but the, we found, and again, Laura and I, we have AT&T, so I can't speak of other, about other carriers, but we had uh, actually very good uh, uh, cellular service. So I was able to kind of link up my iPad to the, to the cellular service and and didn't really feel like it was, you know, that big a deal. So, so solid cell cell phone service. How about the like the park rangers and the staff? Was there a friendly, helpful vibe, or was there really not anybody around? Which is sometimes the case at, at national park service campgrounds. Uh, no, I mean there were there were staff at the uh, at, at check in. Uh, I wouldn't say a ton of staff or anything like that. And throughout our stay there, I, I regularly saw staff uh, inside the inside the campground. And then at the visitor center, which is about three miles away, the gosh, the the rangers that work at the visitor center are just like amazing. So they were wonderful. So in terms of like um, recreation and activities and things like that, I'm thinking probably not too much at the campground, more like you would head to the visitor center for that. Oh, yeah. 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 They, I mean, there's a little bit of programming that they make because there are some trailheads uh, inside the uh, inside the campground or at least access loops where you can access uh, trails from the campground. Uh but the visitor center, again, wonderful. And it's kind of one of those things you're going to, you know, I'd recommend if you're going to show up at the campground, you know, late afternoon, go ahead, settle in, have an, uh, a nice evening. But the next morning, make sure you go to the visitor center, which I think is pretty much standard operating procedure for uh, if you're going to go to a national park, you need to start out at the, at the, uh, the visitor center. You know, this summer we were in Utah, Dean, and I, don't, I haven't really talked to you about that trip, I don't think. But we went to Arches. We went to Arches in Zion and Canyonlands. But when we went to Arches, it was so hot that we only went in in the evening. And they had the reservation system going up till 4 or 4.30 or whatever it was. It was the first time we've ever gone to a national park without stepping foot in the visitor center. Because the visitor center was closed every evening when we drove in. And I mean, I had an awesome time at Arches, but it was like disorienting to me to not have that check in at the visitor center, get my map, talk to the rangers. Um, so important here for Cumberland Gap, but important anytime you visit a National Park Service site. 
Um, any other amenities at the campground worth mentioning? Oh, well, we've talked uh, really to tell it's a it's it is a campground inside a national park. So you've got your three bathhouses and you have your dump station. And, you know, that that pretty much uh, sums it up. And if you want the other, you know, we were talking about programming a little earlier. You can go to the visitor center and they have all different types of interpretive walks and they have, uh, you know, different programming. And the nice thing, again, this is within the National Park Service, this is a historical national park. So there's all kinds of historical sites and cultural things to do and lots and lots of history there. So you can you can hike and bike and ride horses and take pictures and uh, see some amazing not and it's it's like it's a beautiful area, but you you got to think about the history uh, and how it helps really form the the foundations of our country. And you're going to dive into some great stuff when we come back in a second. But before we leave the campground, um, any insider details, any little any little details that might help somebody kind of pick their site or have a great trip? Right. And again, I would recommend staying on uh, B Loop or C Loop. If you want a pull through, C4 is the only pull through site. And we were very, very close to that. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, we were in C1, so I could see C4, and you could easily, easily bring in a three-quarter ton truck with a fifth wheel and, and go right there. But there were a couple of other sites that you could still have uh, a larger rig as well. But if you want a pull-through site, you're limited to uh, to C4. And again, this is more of a personal preference thing. I kind of thought some of the primitive sites, they were just a little too primitive to me. I wanted a little, a little bit more. Um, I don't know. You're, you're, you're backing up into the, uh, not just the woods, but it was a little grassy, a little bushy, a little too much undergrowth, uh, for me. So that's the reason why I recommend staying on the, uh, the electric sites on loops B and C. Maybe like maybe those primitive sites would be better for tent camping as opposed to somebody backing up a trailer. Uh yes, yeah. I mean they'd be they'd be fine. But I mean there's also even on loops B and C, you know, even if you're in a tent, it's kind of nice to have access to that 20 amp. But again, that's coming from someone that uh Laura and I like to at least have electric. Uh but All right, you're taking us back to our campground of the weekdays. Nobody's perfect. I don't like picking on our national park campgrounds because they're so affordable and so beautiful. But any little nitpicky things that could Eh, be improved or that just people should know about? Well, again, I think it's pretty nitpicky on my part, knowing that I'm in a national uh, park campground here. But a little greater access to water would be nice. I've stayed in other campgrounds in which it's electric only. But you usually have a little more strategic uh, access to water. And given you've got 150 plus sites here. You've only got four water spigots to to get fresh water. Uh, so I mean, it's still it's still doable, and uh, like I said, a bit more maintenance on the non-electrical sites would be my preference. I wonder if it's just simply a funding issue. You know, you're describing these primitive sites as as I almost sound like they're just not cared for. And uh, I always just wonder if there's just budget for them to take care of it. And, you know, maybe with the Great yeah. American Outdoors Act that we've talked about, uh-huh. maybe they'll get some extra funding here, right? Yeah, because even, you know, you got a gravel site, but you got too much grass growing up through the gravel site. You can tell it's been a little while since they, you know, want use, you know, you either use some weed killer or you, and or spread some more gravel. So like I said, just a little too rustic uh, for Laura and I. 
Okay, we are going to come back in a second. We are going to get into the park. We're going to talk about highlights, activities, things inside the park, some of the history of the park. This is just jam-packed with so much great content. Casita Dean May always brings the content to the RV Atlas podcast, and we appreciate him so much. But before we dive back in for the next segment, we have a sponsored message from our friends at Yogi Bear's Jellystone Park Camp Resorts. Our family has been staying at Jellystone Park locations for 12 years. There are more than 75 Jellystone Park locations across the United States and Canada, and each one is unique, but our kids love them all because each Jellystone Park location has fun attractions like pools, water slides, splash grounds, mini golf, laser tag, and jumping pillows. Plus, there are tons of activities all day and all night long, such as foam parties, dance parties, wagon rides, tie-dye, and movie nights. They even have themed weekends like Chocolate Lovers Weekend, Christmas in July, and Halloween weekends in the fall. Of course, we can't forget the fun of hanging out with Yogi Bear, Boo Boo, and Cindy Bear. And at Jellystone Park, you can stay in your RV or enjoy one of their awesome glamping accommodations as many of their locations offer luxury cabins, yurts, covered wagons, and more. Make Jellystone Park a part of your family's vacation in 2023 because it's not just a campground. It's a Jellystone Park. To learn more and to book your vacation today, visit JellystonePark.com. That's JellystonePark.com. And please, don't forget to tell Yogi Bear that Jeremy and Stephanie said hello. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are here with Casita Dean May, who is giving us a complete overview of Cumberland Gap National Historical Park. We just talked about the campground there. Now we're going to go into the park and really dive into some detail. So, Dean, get it, get us situated. What do we need to know about this park? Okay, I guess one of the things I want people to think a little bit about is think about, uh, you know, the, the, the United States and its shape and uh, the, its topography and think about the eastern seaboard. Well, as you come in from the eastern seaboard, you basically have mountains from Canada all the way to Alabama. And with those mountains, those are those are, are obstacles to cross in terms of Western expansion. So as time goes by, people figure out the best areas to get more uh, inward and more westbound as far as like westward uh, expansion. So whether you're traveling by foot, by wagon, by horse, by boat, it's very, very strategic to try to find ways to access uh, the West or, you know, at times, you know, I live in the state of, uh, of Kentucky, but back then they would refer to the area or the territory as Kane Tuck. So trying to get to Kane Tuck was not an easy thing to do. So that was one of the reasons why Cumberland Gap, as far as being an, uh, a natural formation, was a lower point in which people could come through the gap in order to access. And it just seems weird to me to think about uh, the West being the Ohio Valley. That's the West. Then Kane Tuck, that's, uh, that's the West. So uh, Cumberland Gap, you know, was a very, very strategic area. And, you know, it all got started. And again, the, the times that I'm talking about here are probably like mid-1700s. And uh, you would have things like, uh, you know, buffalo or bison trails. So you would have uh, Native Americans that would hunt the bison or the buffalo or the buffalo are trying to access water, trying to access salt, salt licks. And over the centuries, Native Americans would follow them. And then as we as the settlers from Europe came to the United States or, you know, well, it wasn't the United States in the mid 1700s, 
But basically what would happen is settlers would find these worn trails and end up using those as access points to the to the West. And what's I, I just find this absolutely amazing. From the year about 1750 until 1810, Cumberland Gap, 300,000 settlers came through that gap in order to move west to the Ohio Valley and to places that would later on become Kentucky, the state that I live in. So this is playing a major role in in westward expansion. And I mean, like you're like you're pointing out, it's so odd to think of that as the West, but to them at that time, it's it certainly was. This is maybe a strange follow up question. So the place has so much rich history. What is the identity of the place like now? Is it a bustling tourist area? Is it sort of quiet and under the radar? Is it struggling economically? Or is it a place that's, you know, doing well economically? Just, I know you're going to get into some of the gateway towns and whatnot, but just a general overall vibe. Does it just feel like something from the past or is it very much alive right now? I mean, it's definitely the little towns surrounding the park definitely are hustling and, and bustling. But within the but at one point, this was the primary way to get west in the United States between the years 1750 and 1810. And then finally, in the early 1800s, you know, because of railroad, better, better road systems, those types of things. The Cumberland Gap became less noteworthy in terms of it being the only prompt, well, not the only prominent way, but one of the primary ways to get west. So, and then it was also a strategic area during the Civil War. Interestingly, both the North and the South wanted to control the gap, and there were there were activities on both sides, but there were never really any major or really any altercations between the North and the South at Cumberland Gap even though both of them saw that saw it as being uh, pretty pretty strategic. Okay, I didn't mean to derail you there. So what else do we need to know? Did you did you want to talk about Dr. Thomas Walker or did I force you ahead into the Civil War there? Oh, well, I guess I kind of stepped ahead, but to step back a little bit, if you want to go back again to about 1750, you do have uh, Dr. Thomas Walker. He was basically the first white man to explore the gap, even though, of course, we know that it was explored much more from, you know, Native Americans uh, prior to that. Uh, he was basically hired to, to stake out this 800,000 acres that's beyond the Blue Ridge. Uh, he led an expedition in 1750. So if you go down through the area, you're going to see Thomas Walker's name uh, everywhere. And of course, the other name that we've all heard of is Daniel Boone. He was commissioned in 1775 to to blaze a road, and that road is called the Wilderness Road today. So again, lots of uh, lots of history there. So, and again, I just kept on thinking about those 300,000 settlers that came through, you know, that that gap. And uh, but the early efforts uh, in terms of the formation of the United States were people like Dr. Thomas Walker and uh, Daniel Boone. And so then you get, you know, you gave us some of the Civil War history. If there's not anything else you want to say about that Civil War history, do you want to bring us into the the 20th century in terms of the the importance of this gap? Yeah, and in in some ways it's unfortunate, but you understand, you know, a lot of the things that were going on and. Uh, the late 1800s with uh, industrialization and even the early 1900s. So eventually in the 1920s, they put a major highway right through the gap, you know, U.S. uh, 25 East. 
And uh, obviously that wasn't good for the area. It wasn't until 1996 that they put in the Cumberland Gap uh, Tunnel. And you have to go through the tunnel now. If you're going to go into the National Park, at least from, you know, from Kentucky, you're going to have to go through that tunnel. So what they did in 1996 is they completed the tunnel and it took the next several years to basically allow the gap to return to what it was like in the early 1800s. So, so I think we went through a period of just expansion and industrialization in which that was the number one goal. And then we you know, kind of realized the beauty and the history and the culture of this area and how important it is to maintain it. So I, it's in a better shape now than it was in the, uh, uh, the, the, the early 1900s and you know, the 1920s when they had a highway going right through there. So was the, was the tunnel added for environmental aesthetic tourist reasons to, to make it like less like the super highway and a little bit more reclaim some of the beauty? Was that the intention? I think it was both. I think it was both an economic thing because, I mean, that tunnel allowed for, you know, a four lane highway to go right through there. I don't know exactly what the U.S. highway that was going through the gap, quite what it was like, but it also allowed for the preservation of the area. So I think it was kind of one of those things. It was a win win from an economic standpoint in terms of it creating a better artery for going east to west. Uh, or even you know, in obviously west to east, but it also helped to maintain the history of of just a fascinating area in terms of the development of the of the United States. So, how about some of the key facilities there? If you're visiting the the area, yeah, there's lots of things just to to see and do. It's a fairly it's a narrow uh, park. It's it's very very long from west to east, and it's kind of nestled in along those along those mountains. There's lots of caves there, so there, are, there you can go to Sand Cave, which you can only access by trail. You can go to Skylight Trail uh, Cave that you can only access by trail. You can also go to uh, Gap Cave, which is probably the most prominent of the three caves, and you can uh, you can do tours of uh, of that. You, they, they're led by a guide, though. You can't just go in there by yourself. And they have wonderful rock form formations that you can see, like Chimney Rock, and you can also hike up to Pinnacle Overlook. The nice thing about that is you can drive up most of the way to Pinnacle Rock. And then you only have to hike maybe the last quarter mile. May, I, I'm not even sure if, it, if it's a, a quarter mile or not. And then way out on the eastern edge of the National Park, they have what's called the White Rocks. And those White Rocks are just these huge, giant, 500-foot-tall rock formations or cliffs that can kind of overlook the, the entire valley. And uh, you can also access trailheads there if you want to go up and hike to the top of White Rock. So if you like hiking, and again, they have areas for biking. They have uh, uh, even a 17-mile ridge uh, trail for horseback riding, but wonderful access for hiking in terms of just these different rock formations. And you can go to places, you can hike trails where you can stand in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia all at the same time, uh, which that is, is pretty so neat. Cool. Yeah, yeah, that is so yeah. cool. Like, I, I would want to do it just to say that I did that. Now, what, what I'm, this place seems very unique to me, though, in the sense that a lot of the national historical parks really are historical sites with lots to learn and lots of history. But this has tons and tons of outdoor recreation. And you could go and have a big adventure in the great outdoors and not tap into the history. Or, you know, someone like you 
you, you go and do both, right? I mean, this is a beautiful, beautiful place for outdoor adventure. Yes, it is. And I think it's one of the best examples of that. And I'll have to admit that I, when Laura and I, as empty nesters, first started camping and going to lots of state parks and things like that, I just didn't realize. And of course, you and I have talked about, we've had podcast episodes on it, but, you know, things like the Civilian Conservation Corps and things, you know, the development of the National Forest Service, the National Park Service. And you can't go into these state parks and these national parks without you know, being being made aware of the history. And uh, this is just a great example of a national park that is just not about the sheer beauty of the place. It's about its historical, social, and cultural influence on the development of the country. So for me, you can't go to a place like this without, you know, uh, being made aware of it and hopefully interested in it. And I think that when you learn about the history and, and the generations of people that have had an impact on a place like this, I feel like it makes you care more about the future of the place. And that's why, like, the second I hear you say, oh, the primitive sites here could use a little help, you know, like, I, it, it just really breaks my heart when there's not always funding for these things. But it sounds like this is a pretty robust park with all kinds of good stuff going on. It is. It is. And like I, there's lots. And like I said, this could easily be, a, you know, Laura and I were there from, uh, I think, like maybe a Wednesday to a Monday. And we could have easily tacked on a couple of more days. And the other thing is kind of a little sidebar for us is, you know, we have a little dog that, you know, his name is Gibbs. He's uh, what we call a Mississippi Maltese. Uh, and he's about 12 and a half now. And he used to hike with us and do lots of things with us. But He's gotten to the point he loves camping, but he's just not as active as he used to be. So uh, I would like I could easily go back again and hit some of the things that we we weren't able to hit as much because I don't feel as if we got into the interior of the park as much as I would have liked, you know, on foot because, you know, Gibbs isn't up for a, a three, four five mile hike like he used to be. <laughs> Maggie's getting there, too. I mean, I look, Maggie has gone to the tops of mountains in Acadia National Park. And, you know, that's, that's getting harder for her, for sure. Um, but what else does the uh, this National Historical Park have in terms of recreation? What are some of the other things you'd like to do on a return visit or, or just things that our listeners need to know about if they're planning a trip? Well, if I were to go back again, some of the things that I would like to do beyond, you know, again, all kinds of hiking. So lots of hiking, but there, there's, there's areas inside the park where you can see uh, pioneer and Civil War demonstrations. Uh, there's actually a place called the Hensley Settlement that is deep on the, in, in the interior of the park, which is kind of a pioneer village. And uh, you can get a three and a half hour tour of that. And it's a, it's a one mile walk through the, the settlement. That would be nice. Uh, the other thing is I mentioned Gap Cave. They do tours of Gap Cave. I'd want to go back and check out the caves a little bit. I don't, again, you know, you and I talked a lot about Mammoth Cave National Park. I don't consider myself a hardcore spelunker or anything like that, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a tourist. I want to see Gap Cave. I want to see what it's like. So I would do those types of things. The other thing in terms of some other local attractions that Laura and I didn't get a chance to do that I would, if I were to go back, one thing is I would want to go nearby and all of this is, would be within about 45 minutes of the, uh, of the national park, the, the Kentucky coal mining museum. Uh, again, I have lots of family from Eastern Kentucky. 
uh, all of my uncles worked in the uh, uh, the coal industry. Other than my dad did as well, but he became a a logger rather than a coal miner. So I have lots of coal mining in my uh, in my family background. So uh, you know, so it'd be interesting to go to a place like the uh, Kentucky Coal Mining Museum. They have an Abraham Lincoln Museum, and to me, if you're going to Again, I camp in Indiana, Kentucky, camped in Illinois. You can't camp in those three states without getting exposed to uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Pine Mountain State Resort Park is one of Kentucky's, uh, part of Kentucky's state park system. It's only about 45 minutes away, so it's another place to check out. And then there's a small state park right along Wilderness Road. Uh, it's called Wilderness Road State Park that Laura and I kind of checked it out because we were going right past it as we were exploring the uh, the National Historical Park. So there's definitely a lot of things to see even beyond the uh, the National Park. All right, awesome. Now, it wouldn't be an episode with Casita Dean May if we didn't pivot to good food, good beer, and I think even good coffee on this one. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to, to add or anything that you missed along the way uh, about Cumberland Gap National Historical Park before we kind of make the pivot and talk about some of the cool places to eat and drink in the gateway towns? Yeah, I, I, think, we've, uh, I think we've covered it. Like I said, great park for if birding, photography, hiking, and and even has something to offer for folks that want to do some bicycling, that want to do uh, some horseback riding. And like I said, it was, I, just some of the conversations with uh, the rangers. I mean, you're sit, I'm sitting outside, Laura's inside doing a little bit of shopping in the National Park store. And I'm you know sitting out there and there's a ranger that's getting ready to start her shift. But she talks with me for a half hour before she goes in to start her, her job and just, you know, talks about her experiences as a ranger and particularly at that park. So it's uh, I, I think we've covered it. It's, it's a it's a nice place to go camping. Love it. All right, We'll be back in a second. We're going to talk about the surrounding area. We're going to talk about some restaurants, some beer and some coffee, all some of my favorite topics. Uh, but before we do so, we have a sponsored message from Where Should We Camp Next? Where Should We Camp Next National Parks? And Where Should We Camp Next? Camping 101. The best-selling and award-winning Where Should We Camp Next series of books by Jeremy and Stephanie Puglisi has everything you need to plan your next great camping adventure. Where Should We Camp Next has our favorite campgrounds in all 50 states and tons of recommendations for great activities. Where Should We Camp Next National Parks recommends the best campgrounds both inside and outside of the parks, along with tips, tricks, and hacks for having amazing adventures. Where Should We Camp Next Camping 101 has everything you need to get started on your own camping adventures, with chapters on buying RVs, renting RVs, packing and planning epic trips, and so much more. All three Where Should We Camp Next books are available on Amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, and wherever books are sold. Grab copies today for all of the campers on your holiday shopping lists. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are here with the legendary, iconic, Casita Dean May. And one of the great moments in my life, one of the things I'm most proud of is that I coined that nickname, that Casita Dean May nickname. And I don't know what you're going to do when you get an Oliver one day, my friend. We're going to have to talk through that. Yeah, with a name like uh, 
uh, Oliver Dean. It sounds like I'm more an, a, an attorney for Nixon during a Watergate or something. Oliver <laughs> Dean May. Oh my God! You you do, you either sound like a Watergate attorney or a Watergate criminal. <laughs> yeah. Um, or by, is there a difference? <laughs> well, exactly. But you know, here's the funny thing. I've actually thought about this. What will happen when Casita Dean May buys an Oliver one day? And I just honestly think you have to still be Casita Dean May. But we can, <laughs> okay. we, can, we, can, we can talk about that off air. Um, so let's dive into some of the, the cool gateway towns, uh, the food and the drink and all that stuff that makes an RV trip so much fun. So take us to Middlesbrough, Kentucky, and tell us what we want to do there. Okay, I'm going to make one uh, a quick comment here. Uh, Laura and I were camping there in early August. Uh, we had hoped for a glamorous 40th wedding anniversary, perhaps in Greece, perhaps in Spain, or whatever the case may be. But you know, you get you're married 40 years, you still have responsibilities in life. So poor Laura, for her 40th wedding anniversary, gets to go to Cumberland Gap National Historical Park. So we were even going to try to find a, a nicer restaurant for our 40th wedding anniversary. But these are three small towns; they're bustling. But you'd be surprised how many, and we were camping like a Wednesday through a Monday, going home on a Tuesday, how many things are closed on a Sunday and a Monday. And I was really, really surprised. So if I were to go back, I'd, be, I'd still have lots of places to go to, but we still managed to do, to do just fine. Of the three towns close to the National Historical Park, Middlesboro is the biggest one. Yeah, it's just under uh, 10,000 people. The interesting thing about Middlesboro, Kentucky is it's built entirely within a meteorite uh, crater impact uh, zone. So yeah, at some point in the, 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 the evolution of the planet, a meteorite hit uh, in the mountains there, and that's where they built uh, Middlesboro. So it's like three and a half miles uh, across. Also, I'm, I gave up golf a long time ago, but Middlesboro, Kentucky is home to the oldest continuously played golf course in the eastern United States at Middlesboro Country Club. So I had no idea about that. And for those of us that are old enough, Middlesboro, Kentucky is the home of Lee Majors, also known as the $6 million man. And I'm not sure if you're old enough to remember the $6 million man or not. Dean, I believed I watched the reruns, but I, let me okay. tell you, I watched all those, man. I watched all, all right. those, all those episodes. Absolutely. So I, I am old enough. Um, but that's, uh, that's not the only little town there. Got a couple no, other cute ones. You, you've got a couple and then you have Harrogate, Tennessee, which is populations about 4,400 and the thing, and you know, lots of cool little places to eat and things to do. The thing I would like to mention about Harrogate, Tennessee is it's a college town. And with me being a retired college professor, I'm another one of these weird guys. If I go camping, if there's a college campus close by, uh, I will tr typically, not all the time, track it down, go, you know, walk the campus. I love college students. I love the college vibe. And a lot of times you, there are cool places to eat, drink, you know, drink coffee around a college town. But they have Lincoln Memorial University and fascinating. We won't spend a lot of time on it. But the mission of Lincoln Memorial University is based upon the the values of Abraham Lincoln. So it is a very, very fascinating uh, small university that offers, you know, you'd be surprised the types of programs that are offered at this university. And it's only about 5,000 students, but they have a high level of professional programs, you know, related to med, uh, medicine, related to science. So a very interesting place. 
And you, you say 5,000 students, yet the population of the town is less than 5,000. So this is uh, a real, yeah, that's must right, be a real right. interesting, like in the summer, it's like uh, the population drops in half, right? Yeah, right. That's wild. And right. now the little town of Cumberland Gap is the smallest of the tree. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I looked up the population of Cumberland Gap, 490 people. But it is it was basically a series of buildings, most of them nice little places to eat or drink coffee. Uh, so cute little town. And it's also it's it is literally right up against the National Historical Park. So some of the access points for getting into the park in terms of some hiking trails are, are in or right on the edge of Cumberland. Uh, Cumberland Gap. So you can grab a coffee. And if you wanted to, you could grab a coffee and hit a hiking trail all right there. <laughs> I do it in the opposite order. Hiking trail first, coffee is the reward. Uh, I understand. Now, you've got some great places for us to eat here. So in, in, in these different three towns that you just mentioned. So what are what are some places we, we want to check out for food and drink? Yeah, I, we, we had fun. The, and again, this is a park that kind of stretches west to east. And we're driving along the bottom of the park. If you get way out on the perimeter, you come to a place called Rose Hill. It's not a very big place. Rose Hill, Virginia. And there's a little place called the Dutch Treat Country Store that is renowned for its sandwiches. But it's the type of place, if you can imagine a Cracker Barrel store with kind of the food orientation, not all of the, the other stuff, but uh, it is just, and you walk up to the counter and you order a sandwich and they're going to wrap it in, uh, you know, some wax paper for you and you can get a bag of chips and every type of soft drink that you can imagine. And you can also buy all kinds of popcorns and you can buy all kinds of breads and, and, and just baked goods and all types of things and jars of jams and apple butters and those types of things. So it was a good place to, and Laura and I ate outside under a little, a little gazebo, uh, you know, at a picnic table. So it's, it's basically a, a just big oversized country store, but they are renowned for their, uh, uh, for their sandwiches. I always try to put a barbecue uh, recommendation. I will preface it. I got lots of good recommendations on Haymaker Barbecue in Harrogate, Tennessee, but we missed out on the barbecue because I was going to go on a Sunday and they were closed. And then I was going to go, okay, well, we'll just go on Monday. No, they were closed. So I missed out on the barbecue. You're a patient, kind man. I, I actually picture you being really agitated, like annoyed in a way that I, I probably haven't seen you annoyed before. Well, I can see you well, being very upset over this. Like I said, I had to get used to it. And it almost became a joke uh, that I was just surprised how many places in early August were closed on Sundays and Mondays. But we still made up for it. And we, we had some bad weather. And we specifically left the campground because of the, th of the threat of bad weather, went to Lincoln Memorial University during the bad weather that if the weather was going to get bad enough that we could go into one of the, the large buildings on the campus. And the weather turned out, you know, oftentimes it's not as bad as they thought it could have been. And uh, so we couldn't get any barbecue, but we ended up at the Frosty Mug Drive-In. So, you know, you have the burger, you have uh, the fries and that type of thing. So and I would I would recommend uh, the Frosty Mug uh, uh, Drive-In. Uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, Laura, for our 40th wedding anniversary, we ended up at uh, Angelo's in the Gap Italian Restaurant, which seems kind of weird. They got this really nice Italian restaurant in this little bitty town of, of, of Cumberland Gap. 
Uh, so we had a, we did have our 40th wedding anniversary meal there. And you also have, uh, Laura is a big pizza person. So anytime we go, which we do pizzas on the grill at the campsite, but Laura, uh, she's always open to trying some pizza. So uh, Ike's Artesian Pizza and Craft Beer. So that's another one of those things. Craft Beer and Pizza go together. So I get the craft beer and Laura gets the pizza. But in Middlesboro, they have a great place uh, for, for, for pizza. Uh, Middlesboro also has a drive-in, kind of like the Frosty Mug, except they call it Conley's Drive-In. And uh, guess what? We didn't get to go to Conley's because they were closed. But we did get the uh, the, the Frosty Mug. And there's also a very, very nice uh, restaurant and grill and pub in Cumberland Gap uh, called the 1919 Grill and Bar. Uh, and then the last place I want to mention is the Gap Creek excuse me, Gap Creek Coffee House and Cafe in Cumberland Gap. And it's nestled along a little creek, and it, it's a little house that was converted into a coffee a coffee shop. Uh, wonderful sandwiches. I think we had a kind of a brunch. We had breakfast sandwiches and coffee, and you have the creek that runs along the side of the coffee house. And you can sit outside under the trees that, you know, they have that's lit up at nighttime and just... It, as far as, at least for me, thinking about a private coffee uh, place, a place to grab a great cup of coffee, it was it was very nice just to sit outside, beautiful day, drink a cup of coffee and just look around this little bitty uh, cute town, you know, nestled in uh, the mountains there at the at the base of the National uh, Historical Park. It sounds fantastic. And in general, you said you had some bad weather one day, but like, what was the weather like there in early August? Was it hot? Um, Are you at a bit of elevation? Yeah. What's well, it like? Yes, uh, it's it was definitely a little cooler than Bowling Green. The elevation about twenty five hundred feet. Uh, it's still early August. It was still our our days were probably low to mid eighties. You know, as opposed to if we were in Bowling Green, it would be more like it was. It would be ninety and maybe 83 to 85 in Cumberland Gap. So it was early August. I, I would st- I would call it less in terms of, I, hey, I want to be at Cumberland Gap National Historical Park right now, not in early August. But, you know, Laura and I, where we live in south central Kentucky, uh, if you're going to camp in the summer, it's going to be hot and humid. Uh, but the, the, the weather was tolerable, but still not, you know, for me, ideal. It was a you know, a little hot to hike, but again, with Gibbs, we weren't doing long hikes. So we kind of kept our, our hiking trips to a quarter of a mile to maybe, uh, I think, I think we did do, and we took our sling because we can carry Gibbs in a little sling. He did manage to, uh, to, 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 I'll say stand in three different States, but he probably marked his territory in all three different States. <laughs> so and Maggie would, Maggie would do the same. I was actually thinking like, it's pro. this is probably a terrific fall destination oh, yes i can and, and foliage yes. as well right right but well we started with a quote uh, and you took us on this mm. epic journey through um the campground and the park itself and the history of the park and all the cool things to do uh, it, you know dean this sounds like you like you could do a week's vacation here you could you could so let's wrap it up with another quote and we'll call yeah. it a day we'll call it a right. podcast Right. And part of it, I also just want folks to think a little bit about, you know, take yourself back 200 years. And, you know, I hear Laura and I are just we're having a, a great time experiencing the history of this area. 
But just think about how challenging it was for people in the early 1800s. And this is from Francis uh, Asbury in 1803 that kept a journal of, of her and her family's experience as they were trying to move west. And here's the quote, what a road we have passed, certainly the worst on the whole continent, even in the best weather, yet bad as it was, there were four or five hundred people crossing the rude hills, men, women, and children, almost naked, paddling barefoot and bare-legged along, or laboring up the rocky hills, whilst those who are best off only have a horse for two or three children to ride at once. That was, that was some tough times in the makings of the United States of America. And for those 300,000 people between 1750 and 1810 to go through Cumberland Gap to reach the Ohio Valley and, and Kentuck or Kentucky. And now, you know, most of us would go to someplace like this for recreation yes. and, and leisure, you know. That's which, the irony. <laughs> the irony. And maybe, maybe we're softer people than they were, but I also think, you know, I, I'm thankful, right, that we li live in a country where we can go to these places for fun and uh, not for tribulation or not to escape, you know, or looking for a better life. So, Casita right. um, Dean May, it is always a pleasure. And every time I talk to you, I start going back through my head to all of the amazing podcast episodes over the years, whether it's on the National Forest Service or the Civilian Conservation Corps. And I love the fact that you bring uh, the history into these these podcast episodes that we do. I appreciate this content so, so much. Um, what's, on, what's on your bucket list for the years ahead in the RV? Is there, is there anything? I mean, I know you're doing shorter trips right now. We've talked about that. But yeah. uh, what, what are you dreaming about for the Casita in the years ahead? Well, Laura and I just, we recently camped up in Indianapolis uh, for her family reunion, and uh, we celebrated our 300, 365th night in the Casita. But guess what? You know, her and I have been camping since 2016, and we've never crossed the Mississippi River. <laughs> we've never been west. And I hear there's some, actually, maybe some cool places to camp west of the Mississippi River. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a few, you know, and it's funny you say that. And in my head, I've wanted to do a podcast um, east versus west, you know, which is better for RVing, which is almost a ridiculous, you know, argument to have. But yes, Dean, there are some amazing points west. Uh, and, I, I, and I know you're going to get to them in the Casita or, or maybe a future Oliver. So uh, thank you so much. And can't wait to have you back on again, my friend. Hey, it was wonderful. Had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the RV Atlas. To find out more about the topics discussed on this show, head on over to thervatlas.com. And to join the friendliest group of RVers, head on over to the RV Atlas group on Facebook and make sure to join us on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at the RV Atlas. If you enjoy our show, please consider leaving us a review over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And we will see you at the campground. See you at the campground.